Before we start this episode, a word about our sponsor. I mean, a word about you. You are our sponsors. It's really just us, these conversations, this adventure. We've thought about slipping a sponsor or two into our show. It would feel like we're letting someone buy into our show. I agree. It would not be fun to listen to you guys pretending to be customers at a store that we've never been to. Or pretending to eat, um, what are those treetop gummies that disgust you? What? <laughs> treetop gummies. You can be straight, here. They're not my favorite. Once I felt like I was going to barf because I ate two packets in the car. <laughs> they taste like food coloring. I'm not sure if I know what that tastes like. It's, I think I've used too much food coloring in something, and it doesn't taste sour. It just tastes kind of papery. Okay, know? all right. We're keeping it real here, and we want people to come along and take this adventure as we go out and get the stories. So, you, the listener, if you've been inspired by anything on our show over the last couple of years, we would graciously accept it if you bought us a tank of gas. Every donation is completely tax-deductible for now, but even if that part of the tax law changes, I hope you'll still support the mission of this show, which you can do in a matter of seconds at our website by hitting the donate button. Uh, Dad, is this episode about animals or meat? I love my animals, and I eat them. <laughs> Welcome to Rome School. We have a development. What's our development? Well, there's two, actually. Um, one is that I kind of like cats now. You love cats. Well, I like one cat. That's barn cat. Okay, one more step back. We moved from the city to a farm. Not much of a farm, just enough. 12 acres, mostly fields, some woods, and a barn. But we took the plunge. We're out here. The land came with nine chickens, a lot of wildlife, and an orange tabby cat that brings us mice every day. It's actually a trail of carnage on a daily basis on the front porch. It's not always on the front porch, Dad. (laughs) Sometimes it's in her barn, and then today it was in my shoe. She did leave you a special gift in the shoe, mouse guts. He, or or she, I deliberately do not know whether it's a boy or a girl cat, happily lives in the barn, doesn't want to come in the house, and we take long walks, me and this psychotic killing machine. (laughs) And I think about vegetarianism. I've bonded with this senseless murderer. Mass murderer. When the sun's rays are stretching across the field at sunset, I look to see where BK, that's their name, is sitting, watching. And when it's windy and the pole barn is clashing around, I wonder if the noises frighten him. Dad? Yeah? I think the part where the sun's rays are going across the field is kind of cheesy. How would you put it? I would say at the end of the day... Maybe not with the sun's rays going across the fields. Okay. Do you think I'm laying it on too thick? Yeah. I don't want to be critical, but uh, I think that part was kind of cheesy. At the end of the day, I look around to see where he is as the sun's rays are stretching across the field. That's the cheesy part! I like it. So where do you connect with animals? Where does the attachment happen? When you first see the animal, 
uh, a picture when you give the animal a name? Do you eat your animals? So a spoiler alert, before this episode, we ate meat. And after this episode, we still eat meat. Yum. But we think about that meat in a completely different way now. Does that alone make a difference? Does being an ethical omnivore, as Michael Pollan wrote about it, does that satisfy the question of whether there is a moral justification for eating meat? It's a bigger question and we don't promise any sort of answer. There are literally thousands of views on this and people have strong, passionate, well thought out philosophies about whether they eat meat and how they eat meat. We'll talk to just a few people in this episode. One of them, one of the world's leading meat thinkers. She wrote a book about it and came up with that term, Camus Davis. But we'll start on a farm. We had to go see what it was like before we committed. And we ended up finding Growing Seeds Farm. We're a full diversified farm, which means we grow vegetables and fruit and raise meat. A full diet, really, except coffee. Except coffee. <laughs> Look, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm not sure if you realize how much the other animals are laughing at you. Why would they do that? Well, they even say that you don't know what pigs are for. What do you mean, what pigs are for? You know why pigs are here. Why are any of us here? Well, the cow's here to be milked, the dogs are here to help the boss's husband with the sheep, I'm here to be beautiful and affectionate to the boss. Yes. Uh, I, I don't... Oh, really... all right, for your own sake, I'll be blunt. Why do the bosses keep ducks? To eat them. So why do the bosses keep a pig? The fact is that animals that don't seem to have a purpose really do have a purpose. The bosses have to eat. It's probably the most noble purpose of all when you come to think about it. Keeping animals? Well, for us, it's mostly about knowing where your food comes from. Just knowing how the animal is raised right from the beginning to when, and then when it's processed, either by us or by a local butcher, and then onto the table. Are pigs for eating? Who told you that? The cat told me. Pigs don't have a purpose except to be eaten by humans. Is it true? It's true. Even... The boss? Yes, dear. <sighs> How do you spend your days on the farm? Well, it varies very much each day. Some days we're rounding up pigs that escaped, and some days we're processing chickens, which means we're butchering them. Some days we're picking up the chickens as chicks from the post office at 5.30 in the morning when they call us to tell us that they're here. The U.S. post office uh -huh. delivers live animals? <laughs> it does. Really? <laughs> yeah, but not to our house. So at, we have to walk, go to the post office. Orchard pruning. The days just completely vary because we are diversified versus yeah. tending the garden. It's obviously taken years to really adjust to what it means to 
raise a chick or a lamb or a piglet from just being born to onto the table. And there certainly is a level of awareness that you have to have through the whole process so that you don't become too attached to certain animals. Certainly that's much more tricky with the larger animals that have more of a personality. How do you keep your distance from a, an adorable pig? <laughs> well, we don't really. They're very much part of the farm and interacting with us every day, but you just keep in your mind what the end result is going to be. The other thing that's helpful is a lot of the breeding animals you keep for years. And so you, you really can grow attached to them and it's very sad when you have to do something, you know, as far as old age or they're sick or ill. But the lambs and babies, you know, you just keep focused on what their purpose is. Do you want to go meet a couple of them and then we'll yeah, ask yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that possible to do? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. We're standing in a frosty field surrounded by sheep. Grunk seeds raises vegetables and fruit, pork, duck, lamb, and beef. So Celta locals, the kind of locals who are very careful about what they eat. They also supply a small handful of alternative preschools with their entire menu. So the boys we have over there, you know, so they don't run together all the time. Otherwise, it would be lots of babies all the time. All the breeds that we raise are old-fashioned breeds. They're heritage animals, which means they are much less susceptible to modern farm issues with just animal health mm -hmm. and hardiness. These sheep are Lincoln sheep. They look like a cartoon version of a sheep, only with really long white wool that looks like dreadlocks. It's hard not to look at these animals and anthropomorphize them, but we'll do our best. Humphrey was bottle-fed, and so, and very few are bottle-fed. You really grow attached to them, but he, is not intact, so there really isn't any purpose for him other than me. It's I love these euphemisms. He's not intact. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Humphrey can understand much of what you say or feel his destiny? No, I don't know that he feels his destiny, but sheep excrete similar hormones to humans in particular, so they very much like touch, and so they'll wiggle and shake when you rub them. They like that. So several of the older ewes, the moms, I'm attached to. Yeah. Do you procrastinate on a, a fellow like Humphrey? Definitely. The end. Yes. Yeah, that's happening this next week. It wouldn't make sense for us to keep him to feed an animal that isn't, isn't contributing to the larger vision. Mm -hmm. of... We have a similar a, a pig, our boar, who didn't get anyone pregnant this year. This is time. Yeah. I didn't get anybody pregnant this year. That inappropriate joking of mine is just out of nervousness. It's an unanswerable quandary for me. I don't think about food as much as some, and maybe I don't think about it as much as I should. And to some, it's as simple as don't eat meat. I tried that for a time, and then this other time I tried it again. 
And I don't know if I went back to being a carnivore at one o'clock in the morning at a convenience store after a concert, when a corn dog sang me a siren song, or if I felt low and I just needed some exact greasy protein that presented itself. Maybe I was invited to a meal at a friend's house. Maybe that friend was a gourmet chef and flesh was served full of love and steaming spices and sauce as art, maybe with wine. The fact is, everyone I know draws lines. And for this show, we asked the question, is there a moral justification for killing an animal in order to eat it? No two people answered the same. But almost everyone said that we could do a better job as a species of eating meat and treating the animals from which the meat comes with more dignity and respect. So rather than a complete treatise on the philosophical quandaries involved in this incredibly complicated question, we spent time at a farm What but, what, does this one have a name? Well, 26. It's a good name. <laughs> that one is not named. Do you find that there's a sort of a cultural discomfort with the realities of keeping animals, domestic animals? Right. I haven't encountered that, I guess I would say. You know, generally people are very understanding that I'm operating a, a farm, and at times we have to put animals down and... And I've gained probably a higher level of compassion for living creatures from having experienced it firsthand that I would have never had before, especially ones that you're raising for me, because it's very different than how you would treat necessarily a dog, a pet. I hate to be fixated on the morbid, but does the boar have a name? Yes, Boris. Boris. <laughs> I didn't name him that, but sure you didn't. Did, and uh -huh. said, okay. The boar escaped. And he's not, so he's supposed not to be in there? Contained. Well, he's actually supposed to be over with the girl. I thought he was in there. Why did he over here? Well, we just moved him this morning, so it's that he probably wasn't happy with where he was put. <laughs> he looks pretty happy now. Right. He's just, that's a, just a slab of happy pig right there. Yeah. Wow. They're like puppies. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But, um, yeah. Okay, beautiful. Do you think I could pet Boris? If you're looking for justification for eating meat, this one works for a lot of people. It goes like this. It's the way things have come to be. We've evolved to eat both meat and vegetables. In fact, many scientists believe that our brains made these developmental leaps. Our society also, it all suddenly changed because we were able to process meat, lots of it, because we learned to harness fire, which made it possible for us to... Cook things so they're edible. Yep. And that set us apart from the other animals. The more difficult philosophical question, is it morally permissible to kill an animal in order to feed yourself? Especially if you're killing that animal unnecessarily. It's not a situation where you're on a desert island and it's just you and a pig and one of you is going to starve. It's unnecessary killing of another creature in order to feed yourself. If you reverse the question, is it 
okay for animals to eat us? In those rare situations where we're not the top of the food chain, where we're camping with bears or if we're swimming with sharks. Or if we're taking a hike with mosquitoes. Well, mosquitoes don't kill us. They just borrow some of our blood. Do we reverse this moral measuring stick and give the predator the moral high ground? Or does all this philosophical thought strip away as we scramble for survival? A more eloquent disassembly of this meat-eater's argument was made in 1962 on an episode of The Twilight Zone. What's The Twilight Zone? The Twilight Zone was a weekly, black-and-white, televised broadcast. What's that? (laughs) It's just like Netflix, only in black and white. Okay. And you didn't get to choose when you watched it. Basically, the plot is that aliens come to Earth and save the planet. They give us cures for our ills and make it possible for us to grow crops without blight. They give us technology that makes our weapons useless and makes war a thing of the past. The first of these landings took place in an area just outside of Newark, New Jersey. They leave behind this mysterious book, and the title of the book is To Serve Man. It totally embodies their benevolent intentions. So like sheep, we accept their gracious invitations to visit their planet, and people start going there to visit the alien planet by the thousands. And it's not until too late that we realize that the true meaning of the book's title, To Serve Man... Don't get on that ship! (laughs) You getting it? To Serve Man... It turns out these beings have been going around to all the planets and making them beautiful, making the inhabitants happy and healthy, and then taking choice individuals to their home planet to... Serve man. To serve them on a plate. It's a cookbook. So it's horrifying, right? Are the aliens bad? Yeah. Oh, jeez. That's just kind of a smart, evil twist. So how should we view these aliens? Are they morally wrong to do this? Interesting. Because we deserve animals as food. They should deserve us as food. Some people, when we ask them this question, just point at their canine teeth. Well, we ate meat when we were cavemen, right? Maybe we still have kind of a thing for meat, and then some people have gotten over that habit of eating meat. It's not an easy question. And us meat eaters get to this point where the only argument is that it's just the way things are. We talk to so many people about this. We talk to ranchers and dietitians, vegans, meat eaters, hunters, vegetarians. One thing we know we can do better is to think about the food that we're eating and not only the effect that it has on our bodies, but the effect that it has on the rest of the world. I was a food writer for about 10 years and learned a lot about most food, but I found that meat took more questions than other ingredients and a lot of people I interviewed couldn't answer my questions. Where does it come from? Where's where's this cut of meat come from on the animal? How why does it taste good? How was it raised? How was it killed? How was it processed? Where was the farm? I mean most chefs that I was interviewing at the time had no idea. It just came in a box and that was all they knew, you know? And for me too, when I'd go to the grocery store I'd buy meat. It was in a box or in styrofoam packaging, but I didn't know where it came from and I wanted to know. So she went to sign up for butchery classes and tried to enroll in slaughter workshops so she could do it herself and found out that there were no such classes. So she started Meat Collective and a school where people can come and find out how to process an animal for themselves. She became a meat thinker 
All this from a former outspoken vegetarian. Why did you become a vegetarian originally? I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad and grandpa. Fish and ducks and geese and process them ourselves and turn them into meat. We lived in, in the country when we did that and then we moved into the city when I was a teenager um, and I was a rebellious teenager who wanted to rebel against my parents. And then I also had some vague notion that maybe the way some of the meat that we bought from the grocery store, I didn't like the way meat was raised. What made you stop being a vegetarian? Hmm. I was working in a women's prison. I was 21. The head of the prison told me to walk into the maximum security wing for the first time and just go hang out with the inmates. And the first thing that one of the inmates said to me was, you're one of them vegetarians, aren't you? <laughs> and I thought, do I look like a vegetarian? Is there something about me that pegs me as a vegetarian? That day I went and ate a bacon sandwich at a diner. <laughs> I don't know exactly what was happening inside of me at the time, but. I like the idea that I eat meat and I think about it. Just like I like the idea that I eat a tomato and I think about it. And I think not thinking about it can be a dangerous game. I grew up with a dad who was very straightforward about this is where our meat comes from, this is the process that it takes to get there. He didn't cringe or cover his eyes when we were doing that and so he modeled that for me. But I also grew up with a mom who was very freaked out by that stuff, didn't like to touch raw meat. Um, she ate meat, but in the kitchen she'd make my dad touch the raw meat. Um, she'd kind of get queasy if she saw blood or anything like that. So I had these two very different models. And it's interesting now when we do classes, like a chicken slaughter class or a chicken butchery class, and people bring their kids, the kids mimic exactly how their parents respond. Meat has become a really scary ingredient because we know nothing about it. I mean, 99% of the animals that are raised for meat in America are factory farmed, and it happens away from us. We never see it. All of those animals and that meat are owned by four large companies. Um, all of the slaughter and processing happens behind closed doors, and then it magically appears at the grocery store, and we know nothing about it. And I think enough has happened in the world of meat, people getting sick, reports of you know, mistreatment of animals, that people are starting to feel a little nervous about everything that's happening behind the closed doors. Um, the other thing that's happened is that because that's all behind closed doors, um, we don't have to think about it. And I think that allows us to eat a whole lot of meat without, you know, we, there's no consequences. Um, it's also subsidized, that kind of farming is subsidized by the government, so it's very cheap meat. So we have a rise of that kind of production of meat, and we have a rise of consumption of meat. My theory is that if people knew how meat got to the table, whether it's the factory farmed way or the humane, quote-unquote, humane way, we would eat a lot less meat. In addition to hunting and fishing, growing up I grew up with pets and in a farming community where people raised animals just to have them around as companions, not necessarily for food. I learned a kind of nuanced and subtle relationship with animals which meant that I could see them as companions and as food at the same time. That is hard for people to wrap their heads around. What, what are some of the things that you offer people when they're struggling with that question? The farmers that we work with will say, I love my animals and I eat them. <laughs>
we live a life of contradiction like that and and to think that the world works as if there's no challenges is sort of false to me um, I just don't think the world works that way in order to raise animals humanely for food you have to have empathy for the animal you have to think about is this a good life that they lived before I killed them for food um, and if you don't have that empathy you're going to raise them in a very different way so this notion that if you eat animals for food you lack feeling or lack emotion or lack empathy or are a psychopath or a sociopath, I mean, which I have been accused of being. Um, I don't agree with it and I think that all of the people in the movement that I'm in um, very much have empathy for the animals, but somehow, for whatever their makeup is, can also reconcile the fact that they're raising them for food. comfortable with it but be uncomfortable with it and live with that just to pick it apart a little bit more yeah. what, what part of it are you uncomfortable with if you are taking on the slaughter of an animal it could go wrong like there's even if you know what you're doing it can go wrong so just being like a slip knife or yeah, yeah I mean, it just hopefully it doesn't happen very often but when you kill another being you're faced with your own mortality and your own fragility and I always think of the human-animal relationship as a, a one-way mirror. I feel like animals sort of look at us and are like fairly indifferent. They're not like, oh, I see me and you. But we look at animals <laughs> and, and we see ourselves. totally see ourselves in them. And so in addition to seeing ourselves in them, we see the end of ourselves in them and the potential end of ourselves in them when we kill them for food. And I think that's really scary for a lot of people. So we see our mortality in our dinner. And for some, mortality is what it's all about. That is the seizing of the day. Life doesn't go on forever and all that. And for others, it's a horrifying thought. So we know that scientifically, we got to where we are in our trip as a species by killing for food. But setting aside the past and the question of whether or not we need to keep doing it, there is a whole host of other questions about how we govern the lives and the deaths of our animals. You know, putting a thousand animals through a processing facility in an hour, not having to think about the death of that animal or in any way contemplate it because you're moving so fast, I don't think respects it. Um, an animal deserves a good life and a good death. And of course, good death for some people is impossible. But for us, it's quick, it's painless, and there's no stress leading up to it. And um, that's no easy thing to actually achieve, um, but the animal certainly deserves that if we're gonna then use the animal for food. So for me, yeah, that's my belief system. Another thing that meat eaters look to, to make it all seem okay, if they even need that justification, is that it's Delicious. I mean, look at bacon. So good. This ties into evolution and how we came to like what we like and have this strong, hardwired desire for the taste of flesh. Make us sound like zombies, Dad. But a meat thinker will point out that not only is it humane for animals to have a quality life, it also makes them taste better. When you're stressed, when anyone is stressed, they um, use up all of the lactic acid in their muscles. And if there's no lactic acid left in the muscle at the point of slaughter, that can make the meat tough. It can change the flavor of the meat. 
I mean, I have tasted animals. Uh, for instance, my dad went wild boar hunting and it was a bad kill and uh, we butchered it and it was barely edible. I mean, it's the fear and the adrenaline and the, you could taste it. You want the animal to not feel stress leading up to the kill and then when the kill happens, the shot in the head um, and then the bleeding, you want no, no pain to actually be filled. So this, this shot in the head is to render it senseless to pain and then the bleeding happens after that. The farmers that I work with tend to want that kill to happen on the farm because it just happens, they're done, they don't feel anything, they don't know what happened. I mean, supposedly, you know, to the best of our knowledge. So for Camus, the key to ethical meat eating is to know the source, know the rancher, understand the processing method. Camus Davis studied this here in the United States and elsewhere including some time spent in France, in an area where they do things quite differently than we do here in the States. You've probably read about factory farming. If you haven't, you might want to before you bite into your next foster farm's chicken. Forklifts moving sick animals around, often lifetimes of immobility over fattened animals that can't stand up under their own weight. I could go on. The most striking thing is that it's not just the cruelty, it's a self-propelling cycle. One step is the grains that are subsidized by the government and the corn that fatten the animals. And then... When you um, can find an animal and you just feed them corn and you kill them at six months, which is when we kill pigs for pork typically, you have a very bland product. And in America we like animals that don't taste like meat and are somewhat watery and moist and so wow. we raise animals that don't taste like much which means we eat a lot more meat because we're not sated by it. There's an inherent cyclical rewards in right. raising more pounds of meat and consuming more pounds of subsidized exactly. grains and have them grow quickly and everything. Exactly. Huh. So the pigs that I was working with in France were um, double the size and double the age of the pigs that I work with here. They were able to move. They were older animals. Um, they had more complex flavor, and so therefore they would sell them as charcuterie, as cured cuts, and people would just use it as an accent to a meal because it had so much flavor. So the French are eating about half of the amount of meat that we eat wow. for that very reason. You yeah. think of the French as having a meat-centric menu, but it's yeah, more of a don't. flavor it's, than a... It's an accent. It's an accent. Yeah. My favorite class to teach is duck butchery and charcuterie. When I was in France, I learned how to, we were working with ducks, and the people that I learned from would turn one duck into five or six meals, and three of those meals would be made out of charcuterie, like duck prosciutto or that kind of thing. And so they could make this 12, 16 pound bird last over the course of a week or more. Here in America, we'd just throw it in the oven and eat it in one sitting, essentially. Maybe and get again, a soup after yeah. yeah. And again, those are older birds. They have more fat. They have more flavor. They have preparations that, that um, concentrate that flavor. So I like to teach people that method. Here it is. It's Duck LaRange. And Mother, it looks absolutely superb. Her name's Rosanna. Why Rosanna? She, she has such a beautiful nature. Oh, Ferdinand. I can't take it anymore. Really? That beer's too much for a duck. It eats away at the soul. There must be kinder dispositions in far-off, gentler lands. The only way you'll find happiness is to accept that the way things are is the way things are. The way things are stinks. I'm not going to be a goner. I'm gone. I wish all of you the best of luck. So, humans may be the only animals that cook over a fire, but we're not the only ones who 
in our complex societies prepare food or take care of and harvest other animals. Wait, who breeds the animals and then eats them? Ants. You know, leafcutter ants? Oh, yeah, they take their leaves and then they chew them up with their spit and then they mold and then they eat yes. that mold. Specifically, those big jungle highway supply chains of leafcutter ants, mm-hmm. the leaves aren't their food. That's fuel for their fungus farms. They've been selectively breeding that fungus for millions of years. And over time, the fungus has evolved these, these big gunglidia, is what they're called, that in turn feed the ants. But the ants have to fertilize them. You know how they do that? No. They poop on them. And they also spit on them to prevent disease and as a form of pesticide. They're chemical masterminds. This really is farming, but are there animal ranchers? Yes. (laughs) There are ants that keep herds of dairy aphids. What? What? They move them around the same way that we move sheep around. Okay, I'm not believing that. It's true. They move them around, and they protect them against predators. They fight off ladybugs that eat the aphids. They even build little barns for the aphids out of leaves. They stack leaves up, and they do. So what they do is they go up to the aphids, and they stroke the aphids' backs with their antenna. What? That's not true. It is. It's called milking the aphids. When their backs are stroked, the aphids spit out of their behinds something called honeydew, which actually is probably quite delicious. But also, these little ant ranchers have a dark side. It's not all a bucolic little community. They actually turn to factory farming-like practices. Sometimes they bite the wings off the aphids to keep them from leaving the ranch. And sometimes the ants even secrete this hormone that stunts wing growth. Jeez. That's kind of weird, right? It's amazing. All this to say that we're not the only animals to choose and then farm and ranch or even factory farm. But here's where we're different. I think we're the only animal to consciously opt out of killing sentient life for moral reasons. Whether we need to do that or not, is another question, but we're the only animals that we know of that can actually weigh the pros and cons of whether our habits of nature are bound by moral code. So there's this other thing. One of the many people we asked about this for this episode gave us sort of an outside-the-box solution for all of these dilemmas. They're raising meat now, separate from animals. They're making meat. It's actual real meat, genetically speaking, but it's not attached to an animal. What? They grow it in a lab. That's impossible. No, it's not. They're actually doing it. It's becoming more within our grasp, and this will be a future episode, but I talked to a guy who we're going to interview who told me that currently the price of a meatball from beef flesh that's grown in a lab is currently $60. Whoa. But the last year, it cost them $600 to grow a meatball and that they're shooting for it to cost six cents to grow a meatball. So this year we're gonna, it's weird, but Can it- Can I throw some bacon? <laughs> it kind of takes some of the moral dilemma that we've been feeling about eating meat out of the picture. Yeah. So yes, for this episode, we're evading the question because we still eat some meat, less meat and smarter meat as we have become, to borrow Camus Davis's phrase, meat thinkers. One final but incredibly important note on all this. We are not unaware of the socioeconomic aspects of this. Meat is cheap 
factory farmed meat is the cheapest. Not everybody can afford to eat exactly the way they want to eat. We are put in many moral conundrums by the cycle we've been talking about. Again, that's another episode of Rome School. Thanks for listening to Rome School. This episode was written and produced by myself and Dana and Vern. There's so much information about our show over at romeschooled.com, including a button that you can push that will buy us a tank of gas or otherwise support the show. Roomschooled receives moral support, beautiful design work, and production assistance from Lydia Ritchie, research and development assistance from Slater Smith, music from Wonderly, and most importantly, support from you, the Roomschooled listeners. We will talk to you soon. Thank you.